Please turn to Isaiah chapter 66. So if you had some physical issue going on, and you wanted to find out what was going on with you, what would you do? You would get an appointment with a doctor, right? Well, some of you wouldn't, no matter what was going on. <laughs> but hopefully, <laughs> you would go and see a doctor. Or a dentist. Thank you, thank you. Or a dentist. Yes, thank you, Alex. That's right. But you want to know from an expert what's going on. Right? A doctor is not supposed to help you feel good about yourself necessarily, right? They're supposed to tell you what's going on. They're supposed to help you. They're supposed to give you a diagnosis and then help you to get better. I was recently concerned about something that was going on, so I made an appointment with my doctor. And he replied, he said, it might be something or it might be nothing. And so I just laughed. I mean, what are you going to do? <laughs> it might be something or it might be nothing. Thank you. <laughs> uh, even the best doctors are limited, right? And what they can do for you. Jesus, on the other hand, is the great physician. He not only is able to diagnose your problem perfectly, but he's able to, fee to, to heal and to fix there is nothing, no problem too big and too difficult for God. But before we are able to be healed, we need to first diagnose the problem, don't we? We will never go to God for an answer, for healing, for salvation, for deliverance, if we don't know what the problem is first. So we have to remember that God is not only the healer, He is also the great diagnoser, <laughs> right? He tells us exactly what's going on. He exposes our condition to us. And so that's why today we're going to get a spiritual checkup from the great physician. Now we know what it's like to get an examination, don't we? When we go to the doctor's office and they examine us, they check our, our body, they check whatever we're, we're having a difficult time with. How would you get a spiritual diagnosis? What would they look at? What would they examine? And I would suggest that what you would examine is your worship. You would examine whether your worship is honoring to God or not. That's what you would examine if you were to get a spiritual diagnosis. Just like Cain and Abel. Remember, the one was pleasing to God and the other one wasn't. And whether it was pleasing to God or not pleasing to God was everything. <laughs> Everything mattered based on whether their worship was pleasing to God or whether it wasn't. Was it prescribed for God? Was it honoring to God? So your spiritual health is based not on what you feel, but whether your worship is acceptable to God or not. Now I'll remind you, it is really hard for us to go to the doctors, isn't it? It is really hard for us to go to the doctors. How much more Harder is it for us to go before the great physician and to get a spiritual diagnosis. This is super hard for us. We don't like getting a diagnosis. We don't like looking at scripture and having the scalpel, um, having God tell us what's going on with us. 
And, and part of the reason what makes this so difficult is, first of all, we think we're doing pretty well. And we don't want to be told that maybe, perhaps, we're not. But especially when we go to church. When we go to church, it is almost always the case, most of the time, that we think we're doing something good. That we think we are automatically pleasing to God. So it is extra hard for those who go to church, just like it was extra hard for Israel, to even imagine that maybe they weren't doing things the way God wanted them to do things. That maybe they had a problem. That maybe they had a really big problem. And so when God exposes things here, it was really hard for them to receive. In fact, it took a miracle for them to listen to what God was saying. And it will take a miracle for us to hear what God is saying today. But we pray for God to do just that. To hear from his word. If you're worshiping God in the way he has chosen for you to worship him, if you are worshiping him in a way that honors him according to his word, that is absolutely clear, then this message, what God has to say to us when he diagnoses us, is going to bring great comfort to your hearts. And I pray that that is exactly what the word of God does for those who are coming to God the way he has prescribed for you to come to him. I pray that you feel incredibly great comfort and yes, a warning to stay on that path. So either warning, judgment is coming as God diagnoses us, or comfort, we are under his favor, and we are worshiping him the way he has prescribed. But let's hear what God has to say. First, you need to examine your vision of God to see if it aligns with the truth. That's the first part of the examination today. The problem is that many of us do not have the right perspective of God. And seeing God correctly is foundational if you are ever to worship him correctly. And God gives us a right perspective in verses 1 through 2. Actually, verses 1 through 2a, the first part there. So a right view of God sees him not only dwelling on high, not only dwelling in a superior position, but also reigning with complete and absolute authority, high, high, infinitely high above us. We see this in verse 1. Thus says the, the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Now, the heavens refers obviously to that which is high above us, right? When we hear the word heaven, we think, well, that's infinitely high above us, right? But notice, it does not merely say here that the heavens are his home, does it? Where he resides. And that's how I read it for like quite a bit this week. <laughs> But rather, heaven is his throne where he reigns. And I think this is a very significant distinction. To say heaven is my throne is to say much more than it is my home. It includes the fact that heaven is where he dwells, but it says much more. It means that he not only resides in heaven, but he reigns in heaven. With supreme authority, he is sovereign over all things. And the heavens means he is above all things. Everything else is below him. And he reigns supreme. His perfect will is being accomplished in all things. He is working through all things to accomplish his perfect will. You might conclude, therefore, that God is so high, so up there, that it must mean he is completely unattached, disconnected from man. 
But God is quick to point out that that is not the case. We are told that those who belong to earth are his footstool. We are his footstool. So what does it mean that you're his footstool? Well, it means that though God is not completely unattached to us, that he, yet he remains high above us. The point here of being a footstool is that we are infinitely small and insignificant, but yet God is still connected to us. Our place in the grand scheme of things is as a place that his foot may rest. In other words, he has complete sovereign reign over all the affairs of earth. So what is the point that God is making here about our perspective of God? What does this mean about how we should view him? Well, if we're to see him properly, we must see him as transcendent above all things. Infinitely transcendent, infinitely high, infinitely glorious. Or we're not seeing God, we're seeing someone else. Yet he, not, yet he is not completely detached from us. And isn't that the amazing thing? He reigns over us. He is sovereign over us. So when we understand that God is this high above us, then the question we should be asking is that if he is this high above us, how is it possible for us to build a dwelling place for him to rest in? What could we build for God to rest in with the materials of this earth? What place could we build for him that could possibly confine this God? And that's the question that God asks in verse 1. What is the house that you'll build for me, and what is the place of my rest? So we need to understand the, the probable condition that the people are in that Isaiah is writing to at this point. While it is likely that they are beginning, they have returned from exile, and they are wanting to build a temple for God. They desire to build this temple. So God is stepping in. Remember, Isaiah's writing 100 years out into the future at least, right? To those people who had returned from exile. And God steps in to correct their faulty view of what it would mean to build him a house. What is motivating their desire to build a house? And they have the wrong view of God in wanting to build a house. And so God is correcting their view. And God is speaking to them and helping them understand what he requires when people worship him for it to be acceptable. So God asks this question, not because he's looking for an answer, but rather to make a statement. This is not a question that's looking for an answer. This is a question that's making a statement. If the heavens are God's throne and the earth is his resting place for his foot, then what could you possibly make for him that would house him or contain him or help him? It is absolutely ludicrous to think that we could do one thing for God that would help him out. That is the most ludicrous thought you could ever imagine. That is something that is more aligned with idolatry than with God. God does not need rest. He never does nor can he possibly be confined to any location. Does this mean that building a temple is wrong? 
And the answer is, absolutely not. That's absolutely not the point. And if you just look at the history of God dealing with his people, you'll find that absolutely, God was absolutely wanting them to build a temple. God commended David for wanting to build him a temple. God commissioned Solomon to build him a temple. And even chided the returned exiles in Haggai for taking so long in building him a temple while they lived in their luxurious homes. So God, in fact, speaks favorably of building a temple throughout the Bible. But God is against building a temple with the wrong perspective of himself. So we must ask, what is the problem here? What is God against? And the answer is this. We must never think in our temple building or in any of our worship, in any of our acts of worship, in our service to God, that somehow we are providing anything for God that he needs. We must never do service to God as if God was in any way needy, or could in any way be confined, or we could in any way help him out with something that he needs. As if we could give him shelter or rest as if he needed it. God does not need rest. Such thinking is based on the faulty assumption that we can earn God's favor, that we can earn God's blessings, that we could manipulate him or put him in our debt. In fact, the greater debt we have to God, the greater the glory goes to God. How could we ever think of trying to steal the glory from God by thinking we could in any way earn anything from God and pay off the debt? What an incredibly arrogant thought that we could do that. If anything, I want to spend my life understanding the infinite debt that I owe God and praising Him and rejoicing Him for that, not paying Him back for it. I could never do that. Or should we never do that? Absolutely. To treat God this way is to mock him as if there was no difference between God and an idol. Paul said this very same truth about God when he spoke to in, at Athens in his address to the idol worshipers in Acts 17, verse 24 through 25. Listen to these words. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. What a correction on the way we naturally think of worship, right? This is totally opposite the way we naturally view worship because we are sinfully minded and we don't understand the ways of God naturally. Solomon expressed this very same thing about God when he was dedicating the temple in 1 Kings 8, 27. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. So God reinforces and builds on his statement regarding his transcendent superiority to all creation by declaring his role as creator. He stands outside of creation 
as the creator and therefore needs absolutely nothing. And I want to bring us back to that point. I love that point about God. He is the only one who stands outside of creation. Everything else is inside of creation. So he is the other, the infinitely greater other. Let me read that in verse 2. All these things my hands have made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. This means everything God has created. And therefore, because everything he has created, it all belongs to him. We are not doing God a favor by building him a temple, or by giving in the offering, or by declaring the gospel. We're not doing God a favor by any of our service. To him belongs everything. It is already his. If he made all things, then what can we give him that does not already belong to him? All the materials are already his. Is he going to say, thank you, that was really nice of you for adding to my building? <laughs> David expressed this understanding about God in 1 Chronicles 29, 14-16. Listen to what he says. But who am I and what is my people that we should be able to thus to offer willingly. For all things come from you, and of your own we have given you. For we are strangers before you and sojourners, as all our fathers were. Our days on earth are like a shadow, and there is no abiding. O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house, he provided the materials, <laughs> for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. He said, everything I've given to you comes from you. It's already your own. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, doesn't he? What a privilege to be able to give back what already belongs to God. So yes, build me a temple. Yes, go to church. Yes, sing. Sing loudly. Read our Bibles. Give in the offering. Speak the gospel. But do outward actions of worship that call God um, to, that, that call people to God and tell them the truth of who God is. Do it with an understanding of the truth of who God is. That is the only way it is acceptable in honoring to Him. Don't do outward external physical forms of worship as if God needed anything from you, as if you're adding anything to Him, because you can't. Rather, we should always come to God with our hands empty and open to receive from Him because He is sufficient for all our needs. Everything we need overflows from the living God. He is the source of all good things. We are needy and He is sufficient. And we honor Him as coming to Him as needy vessels. He is our Savior. David in Psalm 50 verse 12 through 15 expressed this very thought about God when he said, if I were, when God says, in these verses, if I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Listen to what he says. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. So he doesn't say don't perform your vows. And then he says, and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. So how is your eyesight? How's your vision of God? Do you see God correctly today? You see, bad theology always corrupts worship. And bad theology corrupts even good forms of worship. That's why we need to hear God's word today. We need to hear it and understand it. 
You also need to know what a healthy worshiper looks like. We see that in the second half of verse 2. We are given the the standard of health here (laughs) that we can look at. God describes the worshiper that he is pleased with, that honors him, that he accepts, that he looks at with favor. What a healthy worshiper looks like. And this is what he says. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. You see, God determines what is acceptable to himself. Think about that for a minute. God is the one who determines what is acceptable to himself. Not what feels good. Not what you think God should accept. God tells us, and his word is the final answer. It doesn't matter what my opinion is, and it doesn't matter what your opinion is. That's why when we gather together, we don't just tell each other our opinions of what scriptures means. (laughs) We need to understand what it's saying, because it's saying something. When God says, this is the one I will look, he is saying, this is the worshiper that I will accept, that I am pleased with. Do you think it's important to hear what he has to say? Do you think it matters that we listen to what God says when he says, this is the one I will look? Should our ears be glued to this? Absolutely. So who is the worshiper that God looks at with favor? Who is he pleased with? Well, God looks at the one who is humble. The healthy person is the humble person. Now, to be humble does not mean a couple things that we often think it means. It doesn't mean you have low self-esteem. It doesn't mean you are self-effacing, like I'm worthless. That can actually be a, a form of pride, if anything. Nor does it mean you're uncertain about biblical truths. That you don't make absolute claims about God. You see, certainty in our generation has been twisted to be a form of pride. But it's actually the very opposite. When it's scriptures, it's actually humble to say certainty with the truths of God's word. That is humility and pride is to be uncertain about the claims of Scripture and God when it is absolutely clear in Scripture. When it comes to God and His Word, there's nothing virtuous about uncertainty. Rather, to be humble means to see ourselves in light of who God is and to act accordingly. It is to see our small position in light of the infinitely transcendent, glorious God in his superior position, and it is to take the proper position before God and his lordship. If this is the case, then the only way to be humble comes from his word and knowing his word. To the degree we know God through his word, the Bible is not about us. It's primarily about God, and we can only understand ourselves by first understanding who God is. And so when we understand who God is, then we become humble And we come under the reality of who he is. Because we see ourselves as we truly are. And that only comes through the word of God. And really, that's another way of saying that's to live by faith. To live by faith is to be humble. They're very similar. A prideful person does not submit to God's word. Secondly, God looks at the contrite in spirit. To be contrite means to recognize your inability in regards to spiritual matters. To recognize that I'm a rebel before God, a sinner before a holy God, that I deserve nothing but his judgment. The contrite person is someone who actively repents and confesses their sin and takes full responsibility for their own wrongdoing. 
The contrite person recognizes they need God more than anything. They are completely dependent on God. Jesus spoke of the contrite person as being the blessed person, right? In the Beatitudes, the healthy person. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Such people are healthy. Such people are blessed. Then finally, God looks at the one who trembles at his word. Really, these things are all working together. You can't separate them. God looks at the one who trembles at his word. What does it mean to tremble? Well, it means exactly what it appears to mean. It means to quake. It means to be terror-stricken when you hear the word of God. What would it cause for you to tremble over someone's words? What type of authority would they have to have? How about the ability to speak the world into existence with their own words? How about the ability to bring salvation through speaking? How about the ability to judge through the words that come out of your mouth? And that is exactly true of God. He creates, he saves, and he judges with mere words that come out of his mouth. Who is like the Lord our God? (laughs) There is no one like that. What is weakness to us, which is words, is power to God, which shows how infinitely great he really is. Tremblers are simply those who receive God's word as being from God. That's what it means. To tremble at God's word is simply to say, this is God's word. This comes from him. And when you understand who God is and that this is his word, you will tremble before it. In other words, you will obey God's word. You will come under it, submit to it, say, you are God and you are Lord and you are right. It simply means to see it as the very word of God in light of who God is. And that's why Job in Job 23 verse 12 could say this, I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my daily food or daily bread. Now why doesn't it say God looks at, one, at the one who trembles at his presence? You ever wondered that? Why doesn't it say that? Why does it, why does it say his word? And I think the reality is because when we hear God in his word, we see God for who he truly is. How you respond to God's word cannot be separated from how you would respond to God's very presence. And so if you think you would respond one way in the presence of God, but you do not tremble at his word, then you are a contradiction. You are are living a lie. How you respond to God's word is exactly how you would respond to God. In what you think of God. In what you believe about God. In light of who he truly is. So my question for you is, is do you tremble at the word of God? What is your view of God today? The measure of how you view God is based on how you view his word. You can't disconnect how you respond to God from how you respond to his word. It's impossible. So how do you examine whether or not you tremble at his word? Do you take the preaching of God seriously? Do you come prepared Do you come ready to hear his word? And do you have ears that listen? Do you make the word of God a priority in your life? Daily taking up his word and reading and thinking it through. Do you pursue obedience and practice repentance when you fail? We all fail. But do we repent and turn to him? Do you sit in judgment over God's word or does God's word sit in judgment over you? Authentic Christianity is always, always trembling at God's word. 
And if you tremble at God's word, it's not because you are naturally that way. None of us are naturally tremblers. It's because of a supernatural work in our lives that God has worked in us, that enabled us to see him, that enabled us to hear God. When, he, when we read God's word, we heard God's voice. My sheep hear my voice. That's a supernatural work of God, where we hear God in his word, and we see God in his word. We are naturally autonomous, self-ruled masters of our own fate to our own destruction. So what does a trembling church look like? And we're going to end on this point, just so you know. <laughs> we're out of time. But 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13 tells us, listen to what Paul said, how this church responded to the word of God. When you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Or how about Isaiah chapter 6? And this covers all of what we looked at. Remember, Isaiah comes into the presence of God and sees him high and exalted. Woe is me, for I am an unclean, because I have unclean lips. Right? Woe is me. It's humility. It's a contrite heart. And remember what God says. Who will I send? Who will go for me? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. He was a word trembler. And we know that because of how he responded to the word of God. We see all of the elements in Isaiah's response. So what does God think of expressions of worship from those who are word tremblers, such as singing, taking the Lord's Supper, bowing to God, praying to him? Well, God is pleased with their physical expressions of worship. And why is God pleased with the physical expressions of worship? Because their heart is in the right place of submission to God. They are contrite and they tremble at his word. And the actions are driven by the right heart. And this thought is best expressed in Psalm 51. Remember after David sinned, what did he want? Create in me a clean heart. That's what he asked for. And so that is a very good prayer for us. Lord, tune my heart to worship you. Make my heart aligned with you. So, we need to be examined by the great physician. Ask yourself, am I a word trembler today? Do you tremble before God's word? I'm not asking if you love God's word as much as you should. But I am asking if we believe the word is God's final word to us. And if it comes from him. Do you hear his word as coming from God? That's the question. If you find that you are beyond any hope of recovery, then there is good news for you. God is in the business of working miracles, and you need a miracle. And the Bible says if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. God is in the business of making new creations, and that's why Jesus came to die. In Luke 5, verse 29 through 32, Jesus said that he came for sinners like us. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Today is the day of salvation. Go to the great physician, and you will find salvation. Remember, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. As Peter says, by his wounds you have been healed. 1 Peter 2, verse 24. 
And so today is the day of salvation. And today is the day of comfort. If you're worshiping God the way he has prescribed for us to worship him, then you have all the comfort in the universe. You have nothing but comfort today from God if you are approaching God his way through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you, God, for your great, great word to us, Lord. Lord, what are we but, but, but creatures, Lord, who have been created for one purpose, and that is to worship you. And I thank you, Lord, that you have prescribed for us how you require that you be worshipped. And I pray that you would enable us to worship you. I pray that you would turn our hearts to praise you the way you have prescribed for us to worship you. And Lord, I pray that your great name would be lifted up. Lord, we have nothing to bring to you. We are empty-handed. Lord, you are everything that we need. And Lord, I just pray that you bring salvation today. There is salvation in no other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I pray that you bring repentance, and I pray that you bring faith today so that we might receive the comfort of God. In Jesus' name, amen.